Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For this show, I have four brand new movies to review for you. Actually, uh, three that came out this week, one that came out last week that I was unable to review last week because I didn't see it, but I'm able to see it this week, and I will review it for you momentarily. Also, while the Oscar nominations have yet to be announced, I think they're going to be announced next Tuesday, the Razzie Award nominations have been announced, and as pumped as I am about talking about those nominations, I tend to go off on a little bit of a tangent when I'm uh, talking about them. And I, yes, I do grant you this is my show, but I try not to overwhelm you with too much information. So I'm going to talk about the Razzie Award nominations on this show last. First, though, my first movie that I'm going to be reviewing for you is a movie called Yes Day. It premiered on March 12th, Friday, on Netflix and was, last I checked, the number one new movie that was streaming on Netflix. It is directed by Miguel Arteta, who is a native of Puerto Rico. And before this, he directed the movie Like a Boss from last year. That was his most recent um, movie that he directed. He also directed, fairly recently... Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day, based on the book of the same name, and it's a Disney film starring Jennifer Garner and Steve Carell. Like Yes Day, it is a family comedy where Jennifer Garner is the matriarch. And I'll explain a little bit more about the movie later, but actually Miguel Arteta got started directing some very quirky indie films, including some that are actually some of my favorites, like Chuck and Buck, uh, starring Mike White, and The Good Girl, starring Jennifer Aniston, when Jennifer Aniston was trying to break out of that mold of being in romantic comedies, which I think she more or less succeeded in doing. But Miguel Arteta has since gone on to direct more mainstream family films, and Yes Day is certainly no exception to that rule. So the movie is about a married couple by the name of Allison and Carlos. Allison is played by Jennifer Garner, and Carlos is played by Edgar Ramirez. Jennifer Garner doesn't really need that big of an introduction to Western audiences, but Edgar Ramirez might not be as well-known to some of you Americans. He is a Venezuelan actor. As of the date of the show, he is... 43 years old, and he's been in a lot of dramas so far. He was in the remake of Point Break, which is another movie I didn't get to see. He actually played uh, the part of uh, Elich Ramirez Sanchez in the movie Carlos from 2010. He was in a horror movie called Deliver Us from Evil from 2014, and what I know him in was in the movie Gold, which came out in 2016, and stars Matthew McConaughey. And this movie is in Netflix under the Representation Matters banner because mainly it's about, I guess you could say, an interracial couple. I don't know if um, uh, Edgar Ramirez's character Carlos is from Venezuela, but he is undoubtedly 
Hispanic. His character is undoubtedly Hispanic in this movie. And I did actually like how the movie incorporated this mixed race marriage. In addition to the fact that all the members of the family were bilingual, but at the same time, that wasn't a big deal in this movie. And I, I, I think that shows a lot of progress when it comes to Hollywood films in particular, but the three children they have, Allison and Carlos, are Katie, played by Jenna Ortega, Nando, who's played by Julian Lerner, and little Ellie, who's played by Everly Carganilla. Uh, Katie is 14 years old, Nando is 11 years old, and I think Ellie is supposed to be maybe six. That is not uh, revealed in this movie, or at least not as far as I could see, but... She can walk, she's toilet trained, but she doesn't know how to read. So I would assume she's about five or six. But anyway, this couple decides to give their three kids a yes day where for 24 hours the kids make the rules. And right from the start, you learn that before Allison and Carlos had kids, they were freewheeling people who did whatever they want. Of course, domesticity can make, <laughs> I, I wouldn't exactly say a no parent out of anybody, but it certainly made a no parent out of these people. At first they started saying yes to life, but when they had kids, they began to find themselves saying no a lot. And it comes to a head when at a parent-teacher conference, they find that their 14-year-old uh, wrote a, a scathing poem about them, and their 11-year-old made a movie about how her uh, their parents are dictators. And he even has the audacity to compare Jennifer Garner's character to Joseph Stalin and Benito Mussolini. First of all, thank God he didn't compare her to Hitler. Thank God. Secondly, anybody whose parent, either fictional or in real life, is Jennifer Garner, who wants to compare her to a dictator probably has to see the movie Mommy Dearest as soon as possible. Just, yeah, pop that DVD into the DVD player, wait 90 minutes, and then see if Jennifer Garner is a dictator. Yeah, my guess is you change your mind. But anyway, the parents get an idea from a charismatic guidance counselor named Mr. Deacon, who's played by Nat Faxon, to give their children a yes day where they can pretty much let their kids do whatever they want, and whatever they say, the parents have to go along with them. This sounds very similar to the plot in of the movie Yes Man, starring Jim Carrey, which is actually based on a memoir of the same name. And the memoir is actually a lot more interesting than the movie upon which it's based. Again, the, the, the movie is loosely based on the book. As for this book, uh, rather this story, Yes Day, it is actually based on a book written by Emmy Krauss Rosenthal and Tom Lichtenheld. I don't know if the if the book is a novel or a memoir. My guess is it's probably a mem memoir. And the screenplay and story were written by Justin Malin. But unlike the movie Yes Man, where Jim Carrey's character said yes to just about everything... The parents here did have some ground rules, which I think were very good to establish for this yes day. For one, 
the, the kids can't make any future plans. So for instance, if the children ask for a car or a dog, the parents could say no to that. Also, the kids couldn't do anything illegal. And also there had to be a boundary of where the kids could go. They couldn't go within a 20 mile radius or any further than a 20 mile radius of their home. So the movie actually started out really well. I didn't think that Jennifer Garner and Edgar Ramirez were uh, particularly strict parents, so they did say no to their kids a lot. Sometimes they said no to things that were perfectly reasonable to say no to a kid. Particularly, there was one scene where one of their toddler kids is about to stick his finger in a light socket. Yeah, that's very reasonable to, to say no to, but I guess... Once domesticity happens and the kids get older and they, they begin to test their boundaries, I, I guess a yes day is particularly reasonable. And, and I, I do think that parents sometimes get into the habit of being caught up in their, their work and keeping an orderly home that they sometimes forget the needs of their children. I don't have any kids, but I could certainly sympathize with parents, particularly parents my age, who struggle with kids. It can't be all that easy. It probably isn't. It isn't. <laughs> so I liked the movie in the first half, particularly when the yes day is going on and the parents let loose and they actually say yes to a lot of their kids' demands. And the first half of the movie is really fun. I did think that the movie fell apart when there was an altercation at a theme park that the family attends where the mother and the daughter, or rather the oldest daughter, uh, Allison and her daughter, Katie, have a bit of a falling out because of a a disagreement that's typical amongst uh, parents and 14-year-olds, although it's probably tamer than a lot of the situations between parents and 14 year olds having been there myself. Yeah. My adolescence was, was not a pretty picture, but anyway, moving on. But there's this one ridiculous scene where Jennifer Garner is trying to win a stuffed animal to win over her 14 year old daughter in one of those carnival games where they eat up your money. And first of all, the carnival game is completely unrealistic because you don't play one game and get a big plush toy. And secondly, I think we're in this day and age where we have Amazon Prime, and if we wanted to get a big plush toy for our kids to win them over, we could just order one online. And third, these carnival games notoriously rob people of their money. I know because I've played them, but what's really ridiculous about the scene is that Jennifer Garner is trying to win this big plush toy against another alleged mom. And the two of them actually get into this big brawl of a fight, which ends up landing both parents in jail. I didn't think that was necessary. I thought that was very forced slapstick and the movie kind of came apart after that. Another issue I had with this film was the ending. I felt like the ending didn't feel particularly conclusive. I'm not going to say what happened or how it ended, but I felt like an additional 10 or 20 minutes 
could have been added to this movie as probably a much-needed epilogue. So this movie, I think, is suitable for families. I think that Jennifer Garner and Edgar Ramirez played very understandable parents, although I will say this about Jennifer Garner. Jennifer Garner is 48 years old. A month from now, as of the date this show is being recorded, she'll be 49. She looks damn good. She really does. Holy cow. And she is about six years older than Edgar Ramirez, but I wouldn't have had any idea. They look about the same age. But, man, I I think... I think kids who are um, Jennifer Garner's children, either on in movies or in real life, probably have no right to complain about having Jennifer Garner as a mother. I wouldn't want her as a mother because I would have major Oedipal complexes. <laughs> Believe me. But, <laughs> but I will say that the, the parents here weren't nearly as dictatorial as their kids, particularly their older kids, made them out to be. I also kind of thought that if this movie were based a little bit more on a true story than allegedly a novel, it might have some better bases of truth to it. For instance, Shonda Rhimes, the creator of Grey's Anatomy, How to Get Away with Murder, and several other high-profile ABC shows, actually wrote a memoir called Yes Mom, which was very similar-themed to yesterday. And if anybody is a busy mom, it's definitely Shonda Rhimes, considering how many TV shows that are still on the air she has to oversee. Um, granted, she's earned her success, but she actually did write a book where she found herself saying no to her children, except on one day where she finally decided to say yes to them. I think that novella would have made a really good movie. And it's still not too late to make that into a movie. And Shonda Rhimes, in addition to creating hit TV shows, has a lot of experience um, creating, uh, writing scripts for movies. It's a shame that this one wasn't about that novella, but for what it is, I give it my rating of a marginal checkout. I do think that the movie is realistic enough to a certain extent. I did think that some of the four slapstick didn't quite fit, and the ending wasn't quite as conclusive or as satisfactory as I would have liked. But with that said, Jennifer Garner and Edgar Ramirez were very believable as strung-out parents. And the three actors who played their kids, Jenna Ortega, Julian Lerner, and Everly Carganilla, were very believable as their children. I really liked this. There was also a really neat cameo from the singer-songwriter Her, which was one of the more satisfactory parts of this movie that clicked. But what didn't click was the forced slapstick and the abrupt ending to this film. Welcome 
back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Coming to America. The reason I'm emphasizing the two in Coming to America is because, unlike the 1988 film directed by John Landis and starring Eddie Murphy, who also wrote the story, this one is a sequel that came out 33 years after the original, but there must have been a demand for it because here it is. And most of the cast of the original movie is back to reprise their role in this film. Eddie Murphy returns as Prince Akeem, in addition to other characters he played in the original movie, who, some of whom are elderly and might not have been, if they were characters that were separate from Eddie Murphy, might not still be alive today. Arsenio Hall plays Prince Akeem's best friend and confidant, Semi, like he did in the original 1988 film, in addition to other characters, including one brand new uh, witch doctor or voodoo priest, who is actually a very welcome addition to this cast. Also of note is Sherry Headley, who, unlike Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall, is not a household name, but she did play the original Lisa McDowell in the original Coming to America, and she reprises her role as the um, princess of uh, the fictional African country of Zamunda in this film. Also coming back is John Amos as her father, Cleo McDowell, Vanessa Bell Calloway, who was known as Vanessa Bell in the original, playing the Princess Imani. Also, James Earl Jones returns most prominently as King Jaffe Jofer, the father of Prince Akeem, Eddie Murphy's character. Although James Earl Jones' appearance in this movie is brief, because James Earl Jones is 90 years old now. He was 88 when this movie was being filmed, and as a matter of fact... He couldn't travel even before the coronavirus hit. So all of his scenes were actually filmed in New Jersey and Connecticut, where James Earl Jones lives right now. But he does make an appearance in this film. And that what Coming to America is about is about the African monarch Akeem, who shortly before his father passes on, that's not too much of a spoiler alert because it happens at the beginning of the movie, learns that he has a long-lost son in the United States because when he and his best friend, Semi, took a trip to Queens, New York to find themselves a princess, it was assumed they didn't sow their royal oats like James Earl Jones's character presumed they would and also gave them the go-ahead to do. But as it turns out in this movie, he actually did have an affair, a sexual affair with a native of Queens named Mary Johnson, who's played by former SNL castmate Leslie Jones, who, by the way, it's really great to see in movies. I was hoping that Leslie Jones would have a prosperous post-SNL career like Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, and Maya Rudolph had before her, and maybe less like Jan Hooks, Gilda Radner, and Sherry O'Terry had before them. But it's great to see Leslie Jones in this movie, and it actually is relatively realistic for her to be in her 20s and have a sexual affair or a one-night stand with Prince Akeem. But 
the movie actually ties in the events of the original John Landis directed movie really well. In fact, John Landis is given co-directing credit in this movie, even though he's retired now as a director and didn't actually have anything to do with this movie. Unfortunately, John Landis directed Eddie Murphy in three films, two of which were great, the other of which was Beverly Hills Cop 3. And even though I haven't seen Beverly Hills Cop 3, I've only seen the original Beverly Hills Cop, I hear really bad things. And apparently Eddie Murphy said some bad things about working with John Landis after coming to America, the original 1988 movie, wrapped. According to press reports, Eddie Murphy said, in a press conference no less, that Vic Morrow would have a better chance of working with John Landis again than Eddie Murphy would. If you know what happened to Vic Morrow on the set of The Twilight Zone, the movie, it, uh, ouch. If you don't know, Google it. I'm not going to tell you what happened here because it is horrible, to say the least. But the director of this movie, Coming to America, is Craig Brewer. And Craig Brewer hasn't directed any comedies before this. He actually came on the scene as a director for having directed the 2005 movie Hustle and Flow, which was the second feature-length film he directed. Before that, he directed a film called The Poor and Hungry. But Hustle and Flow really put Craig Brewer on the map. And it also was a breakthrough for Terrence Howard, who was known probably as that guy you see in movies every now and then. But now Terrence Howard is a household name because of Hustle and Flow. But what is very strange about Craig Brewer directing Hustle and Flow as opposed to Coming to America is the fact that Hustle and Flow is a really gritty and sometimes very sad movie. But he also directed Black Snake Moan after that, which had Samuel L. Jackson and Christina Ricci turning in decent performances. Justin Timberlake didn't do quite as well in that movie, but Black Snake Moan had a bit of sophomore slump to Hustle and Flow. But Craig Brewer went on to direct a musical remake of Footloose, and he also directed Eddie Murphy's comeback movie from last year, uh, rather two years ago, Dolomite Is My Name, which was the true story of Rudy Ray Moore, which also starred Eddie Murphy. So Craig Brewer has a lot to live up to in this movie. And as I said, getting back to the plot a little bit, Akeem, Prince Akeem, played by Eddie Murphy, has a long lost son who you find out is named Lavelle Johnson, and he's a man in his early 30s who's played by Jermaine Fowler. And Jermaine Fowler is not a household name yet, and of course, coming after Eddie Murphy is a very tough act to follow. But he does pretty well playing the long-lost son of Eddie Murphy's character. Plus, when he's brought to the Republic of Zamunda, he's a fish out of water, similar to how... Eddie Murphy was in the original. Also, you learn that um, Prince Akeem and Princess Lisa had three daughters, and their names are Marembe, who's played by Nomzamo Mabatha, Oma, who's played by Bella Murphy, who is actually one of Eddie Murphy's daughters, and Akila Love, who's played by Tanashi. What I liked about the movie was the fish out of water aspect, but also, but 
there was a bit of a conflict here when Prince Akeem is in a desperate need to find a son to replace him at the throne at the time of his death. But his oldest daughter, Marembe, again played by Nomzamo Mabatha, could, in anyone's eyes, including those that are sexist, seen as being perfectly capable of being the queen and reigning heir of the country of Zamunda. But for some reason, Akeem becomes uncharacteristically sexist in this film. And I did have to take a step back to say, okay, well, Prince Akeem was very charming, but he's human. You know, nobody's perfect. But it did seem uncharacteristic based on his performance in the original. And I did kind of wish that Prince Hakeem wasn't as sexist or didn't, or could have seen the bigger picture sooner than he ultimately did. And that might've taken away the charm of coming to America for me, but primarily coming to America is a good follow-up to the original. It could have been a lot worse, but I think, I think if you're expecting the charm and the hilarity of the original, you might be disappointed. There were moments in this film where I laughed out loud at some of the jokes, but I didn't laugh nearly as much as I did for the original. But then again, I've seen the original coming to America about 20 times. I did laugh when Eddie Murphy reprised his roles of Clarence, the barber and Saul, the uh, Jewish guy who hangs out at the black barber shop. Although I think if those characters were real, they probably would have been dead by the time this movie came out. Same with the character of Morris, the other barber in that same barber shop, who's played by Arsenio Hall, as well as Reverend Brown, <laughs> the Reverend also played by Arsenio Hall in both films. But I won't get too picky here because at least it shows that Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall can still play multiple characters really well. This movie has a lot to live up to. Already people are expressing disappointment that some actors like Eric LaSalle and Samuel L. Jackson, who appeared in the original before they were famous and had prominent roles in the original, weren't in this movie. I won't say I'm disappointed not to see them. I will say, however, that I was disappointed of the people who did not return. I was disappointed not to see Lisa's sister Patrice in this movie, who's played by Allison Dean. And Allison Dean played her part really well as the promiscuous younger sister, who was very funny in the original. According to reports, and this is hearsay, Allison Dean did not have a good time uh, working with Eddie Murphy and the rest of the cast in the original Coming to America, which might have explained her disappearance in this movie, especially considering that her last, last acting gig was in 2010. It could not have been hard to get that actress, but either way, Coming to America was good, but not great, but I do give it a relative checkout because I did enjoy seeing Eddie Murphy, Arsenio Hall, and the rest of the cast that came back in their roles. There were some moments that were truly original. There were some that weren't. I did appreciate the fact that the writers of the film including Eddie, well, Eddie Murphy actually didn't have a hand 
in writing the story. These were based on characters created by Eddie Murphy. I think if Eddie Murphy did write the story or the screenplay, it might not have been quite as bad or rather it would have been, it could have had the potential to be better, but I I can't complain about this movie too much. I'm glad I saw it, but I probably would not come back to it the same way I would the original 1988 John Landis movie. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing is the SpongeBob movie, Sponge on the Run. Now, this movie is prominently titled the SpongeBob movie, but as many SpongeBob SquarePants fans know, this is not the only SpongeBob movie. As a matter of fact, from what I can gather, it is the third, I guess you could count it as, theatrically released film before this there was the 2004 movie called the spongebob squarepants movie which was very funny there was also a movie that came out 11 years later not that kids would know the difference in 2015 called the spongebob movie sponge out of water this was a movie that made you think it was going to be a blend of live action and animation which it was During the last 15 minutes of the movie, a lot of people were disappointed about this movie because it gave a lot of people a false hope that it was going to be a live action animation hybrid throughout most of it, if not all of it. So I I admit I was disappointed too. So the original SpongeBob SquarePants movie from 2004 was completely hand-drawn animation, just like on the undyingly popular Nickelodeon show that has been on Nickelodeon since 1999. Yes, SpongeBob is drinking age, (laughs) amazingly enough. Um, But the third SpongeBob movie, Sponge on the Run, is actually in 3D animation. And it's actually really cool 3D, 3D animation because it looks like stop motion animation or claymation. I was really impressed by the popping out designs of some of these characters. But does the movie merit a full-length feature film? In other words, does a show that's still on the air merit a movie, or could this movie just be another episode? And that's actually a really tricky question, especially amongst movies that are based on TV shows that are still on the air. It's one that the X-Files and the Simpsons, not to mention South Park, had to uh, answer for themselves. And I think that the first X-Files movie and the South Park movie from 1980, excuse me, 1998 and 1999, respectively, I think those two movies earned their spot in movie theaters as opposed to being on TV. There are other movies like the Simpsons movie or the Aqua Teen Hunger Force film that could have just been other episodes. I think actually the Simpsons movie has grown on me a little bit more and it actually is 
funnier than a vast majority of the episodes of The Simpsons that have aired after season 10. But the SpongeBob movie, Sponge on the one, on the Run, what is this movie about? How does it um, earn its plot or earn its big sp- screen presence? Well, after SpongeBob's beloved pet snail, Gary, is snail-napped, he and Patrick embark on an epic adventure to the lost city of Atlantic City, and no, I did not misspeak that, to bring Gary home. So I do have to say that the animation style certainly deserves its own movie. There is no possible way that the people at Nickelodeon could make a SpongeBob series that was this clean and with this high-quality animation every episode. I'm not saying that the animators aren't capable of that, but what I am saying is making an animated TV show is a different kind of skill set than making an animated movie. And there is certainly no exception to that rule. So a lot of the original voice act, uh, voice cast from the TV show come back to reprise their roles for this movie. There's Tom Kenny, who's the voice of SpongeBob. There's Bill uh, Fagerbaki, who plays Patrick. Clancy Brown is back as Mr. Krabs. Roger Bumpass, <laughs> a name that will probably make a lot of kids laugh, but they kept the name anyway, is back as Squidworth. And Karen Lawrence is back as Sandy the Squirrel, who is able to live under the sea because she's wearing a very advanced, I have to say, uh, <laughs> A scuba diving suit, which actually looks more like a space suit. And there are some celebrities who lend their voices to the cast, including Aquafina, who plays a character by the name of Otto. There's also Reggie Watts, who plays Chancellor. Tiffany Haddish plays the voice of this uh, MC in The Lost City of Atlantic City. And uh, Matt Berry plays the ro- uh, plays the voice of Poseidon and appearing as himself in real life form as a tumbleweed is Keanu Reeves who plays not only the voice he basically his head you know it's it's all there uh not his body but his head and he plays a tumbleweed by the name of Sage who guides SpongeBob and Patrick on their journey to find Gary and bring them back to They're under the sea city of Bikini Bottom. So I have not seen a ton of episodes of SpongeBob, but I have seen all three movies. So I know enough about the characters to make a judgment about whether or not kids will like this movie. And I think that kids will. Both the kids who are in college right now who literally grew up watching SpongeBob, as well as those who who have Nickelodeon now and can watch SpongeBob uh, anytime they want. Plus, uh, Paramount Plus is a streaming service that carries the SpongeBob movie, Sponge on the Run. Had it not been for COVID, this SpongeBob movie would have been released in theaters, but I'm calling it theatrically released because it is of theatrical, i.e. multiplex quality. But it does have the distinction of being the very first Paramount Plus original film which is why I have the distinction of reviewing it here. And I did like the movie. I really thought that 
SpongeBob and Patrick never cease to make me laugh. I think that Keanu Reeves was actually the straight man in this movie, but I actually did really like the way he reacted to SpongeBob and Patrick and a lot of their out of control antics. I also liked all the other SpongeBob characters. I thought there were some very neat live action cameos from the likes of Snoop Dogg and J- Danny Trejo, just to name a few. This movie, I think, had an adventure that merited a bigger budget, better animation. And I think that this movie, more than the previous, the SpongeBob movie, Sponge Out of Water, deserved a big screen release and also lived up to its hype to earn its place in the theaters. And I would say that the only other SpongeBob movie that deserved to be in theaters before Sponge on the Run was the SpongeBob SquarePants movie, which is still really funny and really universal after all these years. The SpongeBob movie, uh, actually, this movie, Sponge on the Run, and the original movie, as, as well as the middle, their strengths are that they know the characters, they know their strengths and their weaknesses, they know what makes them tick, and they also know how to make them entertaining, as well as how to care about the characters, regardless of what age you are. So the SpongeBob movie, Sponge on the Run, for me, is a knockout. It is superbly animated. It actually has SpongeBob and Patrick go on an adventure that merits a big screen release, if that was an option right now. And I do think that the new streaming service, Paramount Plus, is on the right track in terms of releasing movies of characters they own, but also characters they can articulate and mold into a big screen release that they deserve. Later on this year, Paramount Plus is coming out with another Beavis and Butthead movie, nearly 25 years after Beavis and Butthead do America. Will this movie be as good as the SpongeBob movie, Sponge on the Run? I'm not at liberty to say, but... Paramount Plus is on the right track when it comes to original content so far. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Bombay Rose. This is an animated film that is a Netflix original. Its release date, according to IMDb, yes, IMDb is 2019, and it's directed by an Indian woman by the name of Jitan Jolly Rao. And I'm not going to get too much into her filmography because I'm running a little bit out of time here. But Bombay Rose is a beautiful hand painted animated, excuse me, 
a beautiful hand-painted animated movie created by an Academy, excuse me, an award-winning animator, Jitan Jali Rao. Amidst the bustle of a magnetic and multifaceted city, that of Bombay, the budding love between two dreamers is tested by duty and religious divides. This movie is called Bombay Rose, and if you haven't heard the name Bombay for a while, you are probably not alone. Bombay is actually known as Mumbai right now and is the second largest city in India. The largest is Delhi. And according to the census, um, Mumbai is actually the seventh largest populated city in the entire world. Of course, India is the second most populous country in the world, so it only makes sense that at least one of its cities is in the top 10 largest cities, but I'd be willing to bet that Delhi is probably the second or third largest city behind Shanghai, China. But Bombay Rose is indeed beautifully animated. It looks like a watercolor picture come to life, and the way that the characters move is certainly very beautiful, and also the way the characters interact with one another makes the story very poignant. It's a movie that's that could, I think, be compared to uh, Romeo and Juliet in a sense, but it's not about feuding families. It's about these two people who see each other from a distance constantly but seldom interact with one another. One of them is a woman who's only known as Flower Seller, and another is a man who walks the streets of Bombay, whose name is Raja Khan. And this flower seller is actually being pressured into getting into a life of prostitution by a very mean-looking <laughs> uh, pimp, for lack of a better word. She also befriends a young girl who is struggling on the streets of Bombay like she is, and the young girl actually has a friendship with an older woman who teaches her English, whose name is Ms. D'Souza. So there are a lot of characters here, a lot of interesting characters. I think that sometimes the story is a bit slow and maybe a little too slow for younger viewers. The movie is rated PG-13, and I think the only reason it's rated PG-13 is because of the mean-looking prostitution solicitor who tries to get the flower seller to get into that life in order to make a better life for herself, so he says. But you know he has very nefarious reasoning behind his soliciting. But there's a lot to Bombay Rose. It is indeed beautifully animated, as I said. It is a very powerful animated film and it gets my rating of a knockout. And the reason I give it a knockout is because it does tell a really good story. It does tell a certain adult story that may not necessarily be suitable for children. I probably wouldn't have given this a PG 13 rating. I probably would have given it a PG rating because there's no swearing in this film. There's no sex, or at least the sex in this movie is very, very strongly and implicitly implied. 
And I do think that this movie is not blaringly inappropriate for children. And I think that open-minded children, particularly those in Western audiences, will see this movie and appreciate it for the artwork that it is. And I would love to see what this award-winning director, Jitan Jali Rahu, animates next. But I hope that Bombay Rose gets the Western attention that it deserves, whether or not that means it's getting nominated for an Academy Award for Best Animated Feature. I can't say for sure. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. Now that I've reviewed all the movies I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into some movie news. Specifically, the nominations for the 2020 Razzie Awards have just been released. And 2020 was, as we all know, a terrible year for just about everyone. And the founder, or excuse me, um, one of the co-founders of the Golden Raspberry Awards released a statement that says, and I quote, As 2020 fades into a nightmarish memory, there's one organization whose name is synonymous with bad and exists to call out the worst. And with all the quote, I, I should have end quoted that one on the word worst, but The co-founder goes on to say that with all the, quote, disease, disappointment, and disaster that plagued this last year, a special governor's award is in order, end quote. I am very curious to see what that um, (laughs) award is, and does 2020 get it, or does Donald Trump get it? I don't know. But anyway, let's go for the, let, let me read to you the nominees for Worst Picture. The nominees for Worst Picture of 2020 are... 365 Days, Absolute Proof, Doolittle, Fantasy Island, and Music. I have heard bad things about all of these movies. I have to confess that the only movie I saw amongst these was 365 Days, which was indeed one of the worst films of last year. I explained this in my January 2nd podcast, but I'll say it again. I didn't do a worst, a best and worst uh, show, films of 2020, uh, this past year. And the main reason for that was not because 2020 was bad, even though it was, but because movie theaters were closed and I felt like I missed out on a ton of movies that came out. So for that reason, I didn't feel like I had an accurate representation of what was the worst and the best of last year. I really didn't. But I heard bad things about Doolittle. I remember seeing that in theaters in January, but I didn't get I didn't have any time to actually go out and see that for myself. Absolute Proof is a movie that praises former President Trump and was directed by and stars Mike Lindell, also known as the My Pillow Guy. So I can already tell why that's one of the most hated films of the year. 
Fantasy Island was loosely based on the TV show, but made Fantasy Island in the movie into a horror film, which will probably piss off some people. And Music is a film that was just released by Sia. Sia directed it and starred in it. And I've heard terrible things about that movie. I do have to give Sia a lot of credit because she's somebody who's taken a lot of risks in terms of her music. For the longest time, nobody knew what her face looked like, which was a very risky move, particularly for a pop artist. And especially when nobody can see what you look like, you probably run the risk of some people actually impersonating you. But this is Sia's first foray into films, but... Lady Gaga's first foray into films wasn't auspicious either, but she went on to co-star in or in the film A Star is Born, which was the fourth remake of that film, or rather the third remake of the film, the fourth one that was called A Star is Born, and she did fantastic in that movie. So fantastic, in fact, that she should act in another film again. So maybe, just maybe, there's a future in movies for Sia, If not, she has her music on which to fall back. So, on to Worst Actor. The nominees are Robert Downey Jr. for Doolittle, Mike Lindell, also known as the MyPillow Guy, for Absolute Proof, Michelle Michelle Morone for 365 Days, Adam Sandler for Hubie Halloween, and David Spade for The Wrong Missy. I have seen... Three out of five of these movies that I just mentioned. Adam Sandler was indeed bad in Hubie Halloween. David Spade was pretty bad in The Wrong Missy. Mike Lindell, need I say more? He's never acted in a film other than doing My Pillow commercials. So naturally, I would say he's a bad actor. And I've heard terrible things about Robert Downey Jr. taking on the role of Dr. Doolittle. And this is the first movie he did after leaving the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Granted, his leaving Marvel Cinematic Universe was a good move. Maybe not in the short one run, but it will be in the long run. And I do think that this is probably a misstep for Robert Downey Jr., but trust me when I say that Robert Downey Jr. Um, has been, has done far more egregious mistakes in his life, and I'm not talking about his movies. So... He, he has a future in movies still. Doolittle isn't a career killer. It's just a misstep. So on to Worst Actress. The nominees are Anne Hathaway for The Last Thing He Wanted and The Witches, Katie Holmes for Brahms, The Boy 2, and The Secret, Dare to Dream, Kate Hudson for Music, Lauren Lapkus for The Wrong Missy, and Anna Maria Sikluka for 365 Days. So I talked about 365 Days on this show in that I've seen it. I gave it a scathing review when I reviewed it last year. It was basically the same kind of movie as uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, but hopefully, unlike Fifty Shades of Grey, it won't have a sequel. But yeah, it was really bad. It was really, really awful melodrama. And I even forgot some of the movie, only that I know that it was admittedly sexier than Fifty Shades of Grey, but that's about all it had going for it. Otherwise, it gave a really, really dangerous mistelling of Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, think of Beauty and the Beast mixed with Fifty Shades of Grey mixed with 
a Calvin Klein commercial and you get 365 days. I have not seen the films in which Anne Hathaway or Katie Holmes acted or the one Kate Hudson acted in, although I think Katie Hudson, Kate Hudson, I should say, has a chance to get a movie role which was as good as Almost Famous, the movie that deservedly put her on the map. And it it was great. She was great in it. But nothing she's done since then has lived up to the quality of Almost Famous. I know she has it in her. She's still in the game. She just needs a better script. Worst supporting actress. There's one entry in here that I'm actually really mad about, and I'll tell you what it is in just a moment. Worst supporting actress. The nominees are Glenn Close for Hillbilly Elegy, Lucy Hale for Fantasy Island, Maggie Q for Fantasy Island, Kristen Wiig for Wonder Woman 1984, and Maddie Ziegler for Music. I haven't seen any of these films except for Hillbilly Elegy, but Glenn Close, even though Hillbilly Elegy was not a great movie, I didn't think it was terrible. Glenn Close, I actually thought, was the best thing about Hillbilly Elegy, and apparently I'm not the only one, because Glenn Close was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress. And so I I do think that Amy Adams probably should have gotten Worst Supporting Actress in this uh, uh, role, in, in her role, rather than Glenn Close. Glenn Close, I thought, was the best thing about Hillbilly Elegy. So for her to be nominated for the worst, I think is... A a bit too harsh. But on to Worst Supporting Actor. For Worst Supporting Actor, the nominees are, and these are really good, Chevy Chase for The Very Excellent Mr. Dundee, which I have not seen, Rudy Giuliani for Borat's Subsequent Movie Film, Shia LaBeouf for The Tax Collector, Arnold Schwarzenegger for Iron Mask, and Bruce Willis for Breach, Hard Kill, and survive the night. Well, Bruce Willis must have been bad in those three movies because I haven't seen any of them and I have not heard of two of them. I'm thinking maybe I heard of Breach, but yeah, Bruce Willis is a bit on a career decline right now. Arnold Schwarzenegger's movie Iron Mask I haven't seen. Uh, Shia LaBeouf for The Tax Collector I haven't seen. The very excellent Mr. Dundee I haven't seen or heard of, but... Even though I haven't seen Borat's Borat's subsequent movie film, I know about Rudy Giuliani's performance because when Borat's subsequent movie film came out, it was all over the news. Yeah, Rudy Giuliani is going to die, if not in in poverty, at least in disgrace. And unfortunately, he made movie history for all the wrong reasons. Man, <laughs> what can I say about what Rudy Giuliani did in that film? He made an ass out of himself, even more so than he did when defending Donald Trump. And yeah, his life is not going to be the same after this. I just I just remember 20 years ago, Rudy Giuliani was an American hero, especially after 9-11. He was voted Time Magazine's Man of the Year A lot of people said that he was mayor of New York, which was like being president of the United States, which is a bit of an exaggeration, but is not too far off. What happened to this guy? I just don't know. He just drank stupid juice somewhere along the way. And there is no denying that from 
just his performance in Borat's subsequent movie film. And by performance, I mean the time he was caught on tape and the time that Sasha Baron Cohen taped him making a fool out of himself. What else can I say about Rudy Giuliani? Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.